I have a confession to make this morning. I have a certain person that I hold in very high esteem. In fact, you might even call it a cultish-like obsession with him. And um, I'm a follower of his, his. His name is Jesus Christ. Are you happy today to be a disciple of Jesus? To want to live as he lived and believe as he believed and to teach as he teach taught and one day to be with him for eternity. And that's what we're looking at today as we look at the sanctuary. Today we're going to just look at three things that we can learn from the sanctuary. Now, as I thought about this message, I thought, you know, there's just no way I can limit it. I mean, I know I don't have a lot of time. The sanctuary tours are starting this afternoon at what time? 1230. And um, so I can't preach till one or two like I usually do. Just kidding. I don't usually preach that late. But um, I, have, I have these time constraints, and, and I've, I, I could talk about 60 things I learned from the sanctuary about Jesus. I could probably talk about 600 things we learned from the sanctuary about Jesus. But today, alas, we can only think about three. And so we're going to try to discipline our minds and just hone in on three things. I hope that they are things that that sort of are big picture things you might not think about as you, as you think about the specifics of the sanctuary, but they are important lessons we can learn from the sanctuary nonetheless. As we begin, I just invite you to bow your heads with me for an additional word of prayer. Father in heaven, today we are just so thankful for Jesus. We're thankful that we can spend this time just focusing on Him. And as you said, uh, through Jesus, you said that the Old Testament scriptures testified of him. We think of Jesus in his Bible study on the road of Emmaus as he opened the scriptures from Moses and all the prophets and taught the things concerning himself. Lord, what a privilege it is to have the, the sanctuary set up here and to be able to, to just spend some time thinking about Jesus in the sanctuary. And as we turn our hearts towards your word, we just want to pray once again that you'd be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our scripture today, Psalm 77, says that thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. And you have to ask the question, what way is David talking about? When David here begins to wax eloquent, almost poetic here, and he, he describes the sanctuary just uh, revealing God's way, what is that way that he's talking about? I believe that there's more than one way to look at it. I believe that there is, in one sense, there is the way of salvation revealed in the sanctuary. Amen? We see the sanctuary service not as a means, as some people might think today, not as a means for the Israelites to earn their way, their, their salvation by, by slaughtering animals and offering sacrifices. No, it was a way for the Israelites to see in faith what was going to happen with the coming of the Messiah and with the plan of salvation. And by the way, the sanctuary service not only foretold all of the life, or not all, but many of the details of the life of Jesus, and not only foretold his death, but it also foretold his further ministry in our behalf and the eventual reconciliation of all things, the restoration of all things in the earth made new. So the sanctuary is like a huge panoramic prophecy. If we talk about prophecy, we usually think of the books of Daniel and Revelation, but the sanctuary is the greatest prophecy that God has ever given to mankind. 
because it was enacted on a daily basis and people could see in living detail what was going to happen and exercise faith in the promises of God. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3, made popular perhaps by Handel, but nonetheless a, a, a prophecy of the Messiah's coming. If we look at a literal translation of it, it could read like this, in the wilderness... Prepare ye the way of the Lord. In the desert, make straight a highway for our God. The sanctuary gives us a clear understanding of the ways of God. The ways in which He operates and the ways in which He seeks to bring us back into harmony and restoration with Him. So today we're going to be looking at the sanctuary and just a few of the components or aspects of the sanctuary... We're just going to focus on three things that we can learn about Jesus from the sanctuary. Are you ready? The first thing that we learn about Jesus from the sanctuary is that Jesus wants to be very near to me. I love that about Jesus. Because as I understand it, Jesus is God. Amen? God is, God is one, but He is three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, as the Creator, He says, He spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Jesus that ordered worlds and created universes wants to be close to me. Now, if you just think about that for a minute, it will, well, for me at least, it trips some breakers. I just cannot I cannot fathom. I can start thinking about how excited I would be if certain people who I respect greatly wanted, chose to come and spend time with me. Imagine somebody who you hold in very high esteem. Maybe it's a celebrity. I hope it's a positive celebrity. Maybe someone who's done very, a lot of good in their lives. Maybe it's someone who has a lot of power influence because of their character and because of their choices they have made that are honorable and godly. And suppose if you were to imagine that person says, you know what, you can insert your name in the blank here. I just want to, you know what, I just want to come live next door to you. Is that okay? You don't have to tell anybody. I don't want the media out there, but just, I like to be close to you. Imagine how you would feel and then try to translate that, 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 that pitiful person's value and worth, try to translate that into the creator of the universe wanting to be near you. And yet that's what the Bible says. The very first thing we find about the sanctuary is that God wanted to be with His people. Exodus chapter 25 and verse 8. Turn with me there in your Bibles. Exodus chapter 25 verse 8. One of the first memory verses I learned as I recall as a little kid, or at least that I really remembered. I probably had others before that I forgot. But um, a short verse but full of meaning, pregnant with meaning. Exodus chapter 25 and verse 8. And when you're there, say amen. amen. All right, let's read it. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may what? That I may dwell among them, God says. Jesus wants to be near me. Now, we might ask the question, why couldn't Jesus just be with the children of Israel in their tents where they were? I mean, they're coming out of Egypt. They've left behind the slavery of that land. They're on their way to Canaan, the promised land. Why, why couldn't God just be with them where they were? Why would they have to build a sanctuary? It seems that the reason is because sin separates us from God. What did I say separates us from God? Sin. And so for God to be close to His people, He needed to help them understand His holiness 
and that they need to part ways with their sins in order to be closer to him. Does this make sense? And so he has a sanctuary built, and it's very interesting. As as God was traveling there with his people, as he's drawing close to his people, he has his presence represented by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, an awesome physical manifestation of the glory of God. And he would want to place himself as close to them as he possibly could. Now, I... I've never found, I guess it would be hard to find an illustration or to paint an illustration that really illustrated what it was like for the camp of Israel. In fact, the tents weren't quite that close because in the reality, according to the Bible's records, the the tents of Israel were placed at a distance some 2,000 meters away from the ark. Now, 2,000 meters is just over half a mile. Why was that? Here you have a... uh, you have an illustration of the awesomeness of God, that there was to be sort of a a sacred zone surrounding everything that had to do with God. And they were to have this this zone around them that they could could, uh, be as close as possible to God, but not so close in which they would begin to make God trivial. You understand what I'm saying? Because God not only wants to be close to His people, He knows the only way that He can ultimately be one again with His people is if they realize the seriousness of sin and His holiness, right? And so God created a sanctuary and gave instructions in such a way, not only that He could dwell with His people, but that He could be among them to help separate them from their sins and draw them closer to Him. You see... There was a way in which the people could come even closer. How could they get closer than those 2,000 cubits? As if they came to the sanctuary themselves, right? Now, can you imagine what it would take to go to the sanctuary? Of course, there were times when they just went to worship. There were times when they just went for, for, uh, for activities or ceremonies. But the most common reason an Israelite would go to the sanctuary would be because what? Because they'd messed up, right? And imagine you yourself living in the camp of Israel, whichever tribe you were in, and making your way down through the rows of tents where your neighbors can see you, and then out through the, the ring of, Israel, of Levites where the Levites could see you, and eventually out into that plaza, that open zone of sacred holy ground where everybody could see you and you're walking across there and you know what people might think I, I assume people were the same then as they are today and I've, I've, I've learned a few things about human nature I'm sure you have too what's the natural thing for people to do start looking start surmising start even gossiping there's only one way that a person could come even closer to Jesus, come even closer to God's presence. And that was if they put, put aside their pride. They humbled themselves, and they made the journey to the sanctuary themselves. You see, I love the verse in Isaiah chapter 57. Turn with me there. Isaiah chapter 57. And there's nothing in this verse that's not clearly illustrated in the sanctuary service. Isaiah Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 15. Notice with me what it says. Isaiah 
chapter 57 and verse 15. For thus says the high and lofty one, does the sanctuary illustrate the awesomeness and the holiness of Jesus, of God? Yes, it does. Thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. Oh, too bad for us. We're living down here, right? Aren't you glad that verse doesn't end there? I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Oh, my friends, the wonderful thing that we learn in the sanctuary is that Jesus wants to be near us. But when Jesus wants to be near us, He demands or He requires our cooperation. To, to be near Jesus as He wants to be near us requires us to let go of self. Oh, what a wonderful world we would live in if people were dwelling, living near Jesus. Can you imagine a church? full of humble and contrite ones? Can you imagine? There would be no looking at other people and gossiping about what they're doing. Right? There wouldn't be no pride and I'm not going to say I'm wrong, I'm not going to confess, I'm not going to try to make right. There'd be none of that. Because trying to get close to Jesus, we would all be accepting His change of heart, giving us, and He wants to give us a humble and a contrite spirit. That's the only way we can get close to Jesus as He wants us to. Jesus comes right here in the midst of His friends. The sanctuary is right there in the camp of Israel, in the center. You could, you could find no excuses for not knowing about the sanctuary. Jesus came as close as He could to His people but not as close as he wanted to. Because only with their cooperation could be as, he be as close as they wanted to, as he wanted to. And so today, friends, we might have Jesus right here in our church. The question is, are we approaching him in the spirit and attitude of humility? Is, what does the sanctuary mean to us? It could be possible for me to be a Christian who believes in the meaning of the sanctuary, be an Adventist who believes in the meaning of the sanctuary, and yet be defying the teaching of the sanctuary in the way I relate to my fellow church member. The sanctuary teaches us. Jesus wants us to be very close. And he invites us to be very close. You see, humility is the antidote and the antithesis of pride. Humility is the willingness to say I'm wrong. The humility is the willingness to seek reconciliation. How many families have been destroyed? How many churches fractured because of the absence of humility? And I want to say this morning, humility is not weakness. If you've never tried by the grace of God, have the heart of humility with your brother or sister or spouse, then you might think that humility is weakness. But if you have, you know that the experience of a life of humility is a tremendous victory in the grace of Jesus. Humility is a, should be a badge of honor, but the devil has so warped our mind that we think we have to protect our own reputation. 
We have to protect our own dignity or whatever it is. Listen, Jesus, the Bible says, made himself of what? No reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men. If it's good enough for Jesus, it ought to be good enough for those of us who call ourselves his disciples. Amen? Amen. Oh, I want to be near Jesus. I want to be close to Jesus. Jesus wants to be close to me. The second thing that I learn about Jesus from the sanctuary is that Jesus brings order, and sometimes it's reorder, to my life. You see, when Israel was leaving Egypt, they were quite a motley bunch. They were a bunch of slaves. 400 years nearly of slavery had degraded them and, and, and changed their whole perspectives on life. Many of them were illiterate. There were some who weren't, of course, but, but a lot of them were. And there, it, was, it was difficult for God to try to bring order and organization to them. And in order to do that, he gave them the sanctuary. Now, the sanctuary did a lot of things. The sanctuary taught them the way of salvation, but it also just taught them how to live their daily life. Centered around their daily life was the sanctuary. The sanctuary was the center of Israel, of the camp. And so the sanctuary brought order and organization to Israel. I want to just give you a couple of examples of how that would have taken place. For example, we find that if we study the sanctuary, we see that there were sort of a, a, a concentric rings of, of, or zones, you might call them, centered around the holy place. First of all, around the camp of Israel, you had the wilderness, right? And that was just, well, they were passing through the wilderness. There were the nations around and, and so forth. And closer in, you have the mixed multitude with their tents camp. They wouldn't have fit in any of the specific tribes. They came out of Egypt with the children of Israel. They were, they were welcomed, just like the children of Israel, to make their way to the temple. And we'll look at that in a, in a minute. But um, there were the mixed multitude. And they were, they were uh, pressing closer from the wilderness. They weren't just like the nations out there. They were actually traveling with the Israelites. And they were invited to be a part of them. Then you have the 12 tribes around the, around the encampment. Three on each side. We'll look at those in a second. And then inside those 12 tribes, you have the Levites in that plaza that I described to you with that, that open area around the sanctuary uh, curtains, around the courtyard. And then inside that, you have the court. As you would get closer and closer to the Shekinah glory, you would be progressing through these different zones. Inside the court, of course, was the tabernacle with the holy place and ultimately the most holy place where Jesus himself was. And in this very, very organized very strategic, very intentional layout that God gave to the children of Israel, he wanted them to have order and organization. On the east, you had the tribes of Judah. On either side of him, Issachar and Zebulun. On the south, you had uh, Reuben, bordered by Simeon and Gad. On the west, you had Ephraim with Manasseh and Benjamin. And in, in front of each of their encampments would be their ensigns with the uh, logos. Of course, these are just artist descriptions, uh, ideas of what they might have looked like. But on the north, you have Dan with Asher and Naphtali. Everything about the camp was to be ordered and orderly. And everything about the camp was to be clean from every soul from the commander-in-chief to the lowest soldier in the army was sacredly charged to preserve cleanliness in his person and surroundings for the Israelites were chosen by God as his peculiar people they were sacredly bound to be holy and body and spirit they were not to be careless or neglectful 
in their personal duties, in every respect, they were to preserve cleanliness. Now, how do you teach a, na- a nation of slaves to be self-disciplined, to be orderly and organized? They're not used to doing things on their own. They're used to being told, right? And so God, God created this whole system and, and established a way where they could form a habit. It was like a huge school, really, going on there in the wilderness, wasn't a training camp in order for them to be educated and in order for them to become more like the God that they were following and serving. And as they, as they went through the wilderness, one thing after another God did to try to teach them the principles that he was trying to have them live by. For example, if you had been a slave and accustomed to working when your master told you to work and not, what would you do when you got, um, well, when you got free? You were out in the wilderness camping, going on a journey, and um, no one's there to tell you to wake up in the morning. What are you going to do? Students, if you're on home leave, you can tell me, probably. Nothing wrong with sleeping in from time to time. But if you have a nation that sleeps in, what's going to happen? You're not going to have a productive nation, are you? You're not going to have an orderly, organized nation. So what does God do when he starts to feed them manna from heaven? You remember how he did it? He could have said, you know, pick it up every evening. You know, it's going to be there till midnight. So they could be out and then crash and sleep in. Is that what he did? No, it was there in the morning, and when the sun got hot, it was gone. That meant, friends, and by the way, it didn't last. You couldn't just be, you couldn't just be, you know, you know, productive one day of the week and hoard it all because it spoiled, right? And so every single morning, if you wanted to eat, God was teaching them habits that would bring them success. Habits of orderliness, of regularity. And everything connected with the sanctuary was to teach them these lessons as well. They were to allow nothing untidy or unwholesome in their surroundings. Nothing that would taint the purity of the atmosphere. Inwardly and outwardly they were to be pure. Turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 23. We're going to look here at Deuteronomy chapter 23, just one verse very quickly. God even cared about their sanitation, how they took care of their needs, and there was specific instructions given to the smallest detail about all of these types of cleanliness and orderliness details. And notice with me why. In Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 14, For the Lord your God... Are you there? Deuteronomy 23, 14. For the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp... Oh, I thought he was there in the Shekinah glory. No, God did not, he was not content just to be in the Shekinah glory. He wanted to be walking up and down those rows of tents. He wanted to be. Do you believe, friends, that he wants to also be a visitor in your home? He's saying, let everything be clean and orderly and sanitary and and, and neat because, he says, the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give your enemies over to you. Therefore, your camp shall be holy, that he may see no unclean thing among you and turn away from you. Oh, God wanted orderliness and reorderliness, as you might say it, in their lives. One thing I learned about the sanctuary, one thing I learned about the sanctuary is that if I want Jesus dwelling with me, I have choices to make. There are some people who might say, you know what, of course we want the sanctuary. Go ahead and build it, Moses. But I don't want to make my tent row straight with my neighbors. 
I don't want to have to carry my garbage out of the camp and throw it away. I want to throw it out my front door. Go ahead and build your sanctuary. God can be there. That's fine. Is that how it worked? No. No. There's some people still today who are saying, yes, I want Jesus as my Savior. I don't want Him as Lord of my life. I don't want to make changes, or if I make changes, I'm going to make changes in these areas, but God, you can't tell me anything about areas A, B, or C. Those are mine, right? You understand what I'm saying? As I say these things, it starts to, I mean, I, I get pricked myself. Because it's very easy for us to try to compartmentalize, to be Seventh-day Adventists instead of Seventh-day Adventists. To be followers of Jesus on our day of worship, but the rest of the week, how are our lives an invitation to Jesus to dwell with us? A recognition of his holiness and an invitation for him to be a part of us. You know, it's something that each of us can learn from. Jesus reorders my life. He wants even my lifestyle. He wants to change the ways I live my life. The third thing I learned about Jesus in the sanctuary is that Jesus involves everyone. I love that in today's world. I love the fact that we have a Jesus who loves everyone and gives opportunity to everyone. There was nobody excluded from the camp, from the, from the experience of the sanctuary. The only person who might be excluded, listen to me carefully, the only person who was excluded from the service of the sanctuary was the person who excluded himself by his pride. The person who felt no need to go to the sanctuary. The person who said, I'm good enough. That person, you could say, was excluded. But that was their own choice. God did not exclude anyone from the experience of the sanctuary. Rather, God included everyone. Look with me at what the, uh, what the, what the, the Bible says was possible. You see, in Leviticus chapter 4, we, talk, we see the, the, uh, the, the sacrifices that the priests and rulers would offer. We see also in Leviticus chapter 4 and verse 27, the sacrifices of the common people. Now, the common people, if we look at what that word means, it was really just talking about those of other nations. It wasn't talking about common people among Israel. No, it was anyone could come, because Israel was supposed to be a light for the whole world. Israel was supposed to be a, a, an opportunity to bless all the nations through the seed of Abraham. And so all would be invited, if they were willing to be a part of the process, they would be invited. The commoners also could come and offer their sacrifices. There was no exclusivity. There was no, there was no denial of, based upon a person's ethnicity. But also, there was no denial based upon a person's socioeconomic status. It didn't matter. Let's say you were too poor to have a lamb to bring to the temple. If you were too poor, you didn't have a lamb to bring. Look with me in Leviticus chapter 5. I want you to just see this here. As we look at it together, I want you to see how inclusive God is in the sanctuary. Leviticus chapter 5. And let's just read very quickly a couple of verses here. Leviticus chapter 5. And uh, we'll read first verse 7. 
Leviticus chapter 5 and verse 7. This is God speaking to Moses. If he is not able to bring a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord for his trespass which he has committed two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering. You see, my friends, Jesus did not want church. He did not want his sanctuary to be a, a, a club, a social club. This was not about what you had. That all was left when you went off into that plaza by yourself on your walk of humility. It didn't matter how much money you had when you came to the sanctuary. There was one God and he was no respecter of persons. And if you didn't have the money to bring a lamb, if you didn't have those resources, it didn't matter. God says, listen, if you don't have a lamb, bring that which you can't afford, those two turtle doves or two young pigeons. One is a sin offering and the other is a burnt offering. Bring what you have. Notice with me verse 11. If you're still too poor for that. Verse 11. But if he is not able to bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons, then he who sins shall bring for his offering one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a sin offering. Basically, this is the situation. If you were alive, if you had food to eat today, you could go to the sanctuary. God didn't want to exclude anybody. Everyone was included if they were only willing and interested they could experience that nearness to Jesus. Oh, I'm so thankful if we have a God who looks down still today in 2013 and doesn't judge us according to who we are, what we have. He simply invites us. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what your past is, no matter what the sins you struggle with are, the sanctuary is open for you and for me. Jesus invites everyone to be a part of this experience. And not only, listen to me carefully, not only could they bring their offerings, there might be some who would surmise from the fact that the sinner brought a lamb, or the sinner brought two turtle doves or two pigeons, or the sinner, the poor sinner could bring a little bit of flour, fine flour. There might be some who would surmise that the sanctuary was teaching some sort of salvation by works, as if that was meritorious. Let me tell you, when the person brought the lamb to the sanctuary, and that walk of humility, which by itself flies in the face of any ideas of merit, right? It's humility. It's not pride, I'm going to the sanctuary. No. But when the sinner brought that lamb and confessed his sin upon the lamb and cut his throat with his own hand, in a literal sense, the sinner's work was finished and the priest would then take that blood and do with it what he was supposed to do with it. You understand what I'm saying? The sinner could not save himself. Are you with me? The sinner couldn't come and take the life of the lamb and, and catch the blood and then go before the veil and sprinkle it. And No, only the priest could go into the holy place and do that on behalf of the sinner. Are you with me? Everyone was able to participate, but everyone was equally, equally dependent on the priest's ministry. Everyone is equally dependent upon the ministry and the work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And as, 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 the, as the life of the Lamb was spilt, that did not save the sinner. No, the whole ceremony had to be taken out. And for that, the sinner depended wholly upon the priest. If you understand the sanctuary service, my friends, 
you cannot be a legalist. Because nothing you do, nothing you do is able to save you. Only your faith in what the priest is doing for you will save you. Oh, there was something to be done besides the dastardly deed of cutting the neck of the, of the sacrifice. The sinner was to follow the work of the priest by faith as he went about the sanctuary duties. There were bells on the garments of those priest's garments so that the sinner could know that priest was officiating for him and follow his activity in the mind of faith. And so also, we cooperate with God in our salvation, but it's only Jesus who saves us. Amen? Amen. It's only through the work of that high priest. The high priest would go into the holy place. Did the, pre, did, did the sinner go in and eat the showbread? No. Did the, did the sinner go in and, and uh, offer incense? No. Are we to be involved in what those represented? Yes. The sinner, I... I follow Jesus by faith into the holy place. I follow him as he ministers in the sanctuary. It's as I'm following him that I too am eating of the word of life, that I too am washed by the water of the word, that I too am a light of the world as he is light of the world, that I too am offering my prayers to him as he mingles it with his righteousness. But it's all commingled with the perfect righteousness of Jesus. It's him and not me. I'm so thankful for Jesus. I'm so thankful that he is our priest. If you comprehend the meaning of the sanctuary, you cannot think that we earn our own salvation or that anything we do will save us. But there's a Savior who invites us to cooperate with him. Three things I learned about Jesus from the sanctuary. Jesus wants to be near me. Jesus reorders my life. And Jesus invites and involves everyone. What about you today, my friend? If Jesus were to look down at the Dalton Seventh-day Adventist Church, this community here in Dalton, would he find men and women, boys and girls, who are wanting to be near him, approaching him by faith, allowing him to reorder their lives, and giving the invitation to all. I hope that's the experience that each one of us has. And I hope that as we share the Messiah's Mansion this week, it's the experience that others can enjoy as well. As we learn more about Jesus, let's allow him to work in our hearts. Let's allow him to give us a heart, a new heart a heart of humility, a heart of drawing close to Him, a heart of obedience, a heart of allowing Him to work in our lives, not because anything good will come of our own efforts, but because we want to be close to the one we follow, the one we love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, today we're just so thankful for Jesus. We're thankful that in Him we find salvation, full salvation, complete salvation. Lord, I just want to pray that you would help us, help us to draw near to him. Help us to put aside our own pride. Maybe it's pride of opinion. Maybe it's our pride of accomplishments. Maybe it's our pride of correctness. I don't know what it is, Lord. We all 
We all are human. We all have that pride. Maybe it's the pride that brings contention because you've said in Proverbs that only by pride comes contention. Lord, I just want to pray that whatever it is, you'd help us to set it aside. That we might not be <laughs> touring the sanctuary and yet defying its meaning in our personal hearts. But that we might allow Jesus to come very close to us and we might seek him. Lord, help us to give him the opportunity to reorder our lives as well. Maybe there's somebody here that's been convicted about something. I just want to pray, Lord, that you'd give them the strength to give that to Jesus. To surrender what he is calling for in their lives. To know that he has something vastly better than what they think for themselves. Lord, today, maybe there's somebody here who thinks that this is all great and good, but it's not for me. I just pray that they might see that the sanctuary excludes nobody. But that all of us, no matter who we are, are invited to come to the foot of the cross. That there the ground is level, that we're all equal, that no matter what our background is or where we live or what we look like, it doesn't matter. Jesus is no respecter of persons. And help us, I pray, to go to our community with this Jesus in mind, to invite them to know him better, that we might make disciples, we pray in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.